If you live to a hundred today, you find yourself opening a letter from Her Majesty the Queen. But around half the children born in the West in 2021 will live to a greater age than 100. If you can succeed in one career in, say, 20 years, in a longer life, what's to stop you from having two? I'm Jenny Murray, and this is Now I'm Grown Up, a podcast about our longer lives, career change and education. Each week, we'll hear from people who've succeeded in one walk of life and decided to give it all up for another, specifically in the sector that has helped us all launch our own first careers. Yes, teaching. We'll delve into the big topics surrounding education at the moment, the ideas behind a later life career change, and we'll find out what it's really like to swap the boardroom for the staff room. I was in investment banking for 10 years. I used to be a managing director of a risk management firm. I was a civil servant for a very long time. I was a, a corporate lawyer and I worked in the city for two decades. I'm a journalist and an author and I'm also someone who's navigating my own career change. I presented BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour for more than three decades and now I'm pondering my own next steps. In this series, we're going to hear from people who crossed that bridge and ended up in a classroom, making use of skills learned in courtrooms, newsrooms and offices, people who decided what they wanted to do. Now they're really grown up. Starting with Lucy Kellaway. Like me, Lucy had been in the same job for more than 30 years, but she didn't just give up her former career to move into teaching. She decided to persuade hundreds of people to do the same each year and return to the classroom as teachers. For that, Lucy set up the charity Now Teach, which helps professionals at the top of their game who opt to put themselves at the bottom of a very different career ladder. So let's listen to Lucy. She's the first to tell you that quitting her own job wasn't a decision she took lightly. I think it came upon me very, very slowly. Um, my mum was an amazing teacher. And when she, I'd never thought of being t- a, a teacher, it was sort of badly paid, unglamorous. And I watched her work till midnight every night. So I thought, no, thanks. But when my mum died, I suddenly had this weird thing. It wasn't quite that I wanted to be my mum. It was that I wanted to sort of fill her place. I was... I guess in my late 40s and I looked up a couple of PGC courses and I thought no I'm too old and in any case I sort of needed the money my kids were small. Ten years later my dad died and then the whole teaching thing came back to me. I'm Lucy Kellaway. I've been an economics teacher at a school in Hackney for nearly four years but before that I was a journalist, a columnist on the Financial Times. I stuck it out for 32 years. Mainly what I did was write sarcastic columns that were taking the piss out of corporate life. As jobs go, it was about as cushy as they come. It was great, but 32 years was too long. It was just too long. And yeah, what what used to motivate me didn't anymore and I quit. By then, I was 57, and I thought, I don't want to, I don't want to just do one thing, I want to do something else. 
And when I thought about this at 47, the thought that I was too old was absolutely in the front of my mind. I looked at the pictures of all of these young teachers. I just thought they had nothing to do with me. I thought I'd missed the boat. But what was so weird was that 10 years later, the thought didn't occur to me once. And, I, you know, I've wondered what made the difference. Well, I think it's partly that I was so aware of the shortage of teachers. But there was also something else, which was that at 47, I suppose I still thought that I might kind of retire at about 60 plus. But by the time I was 57, I was nearly there. Um, and the thought of retiring was is just inconceivable. So at 57, I was more confident of how long I would continue to work for than I had been 10 years earlier. What you risk when you change career in your late 50s is so much less than younger because I had already proved that I was good at one thing. And I think my priorities had completely changed. When I started out and wanted to go into journalism, my coolest friends were journalists. I thought that being a journalist was cool. I thought it was glamorous, God help me. I thought I was much better paid than teaching. Um, it was fun. And all of those things wane. Things are much less fun when you've been doing them for three decades. And here is the interesting bit. Even though this is so widespread, so few people are doing anything about it because they just don't know how. When I look at myself in the mirror, I think I look 10 years older than I did when I was at the FT. So I look as if this has taken the most catastrophic heavy toll on me physically, but emotionally, mentally, I feel 10 years younger. And wouldn't we all like to feel 10 years younger? Now, listening to Lucia, my guest today, who will be digging into the idea of the 100-year life and telling me whether the working world has adapted to our longer lifespans. I'm joined by Andrew Scott, who was so fascinated by this under-discussed subject that he became one of the authors of a book about it, The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an age of longevity. He's also Professor of Economics at London Business School and a Fellow of All Souls, Oxford. I'm also joined by Katie Waldegrave, who founded Now Teach alongside Lucy and is a trained teacher and past entrepreneur herself. So Katie, Katie Waldegrave, three children who are likely to live to more than 100. How do you envisage their future? The mind kind of boggles, doesn't it? Um, it was, in fact, I just had twins when Lucy and I met. We were holding one of these tiny, tiny babies each in our hands. And we'd also read Andrew's book. And we were trying to think, were we really correct from understanding his book that they were both more likely to live to 100 than both not? And what on earth was that going to do for sort of everything in their life, education, work and and all of the rest of it. And of course, at the same time, Lucy was pondering becoming a teacher. And as we thought, my goodness, my grandchildren might live to the 23rd century. We also thought this is going to be the most astonishing set of changes already. And that in Lucy becoming a teacher, she 
she she couldn't kind of be the only one that was thinking age 58 or whatever she was then that she wanted to start all over again and do something new and so all bundled up together somehow for me with imagining what my children's future was look like was thinking about how it's already changing our lives and how interesting how interesting that is to the extent that we have something as pretentious sounding as a, a founding book for now teach it is it is 100 years like Andrew having co-authored the book how do you describe the 100 year life how do you see it step by step uh well i'm sort of great with the title because i think it sort of conjures up both good and bad things it just makes everyone think about a future and you know what is happening of course is every generation has been living longer than the previous one but we haven't really adapted and adjusted to that and you know for me the key thing is whatever your age you have more future and as katie said of course if you're a newborn wow that's a lot of future and um, society has never had to plan for these very long lives. You know, we've always had people living to 78, even some reaching 90 or 100. But now, you know, there's a new imperative, which is children born today, according to government statistics, more than half of them will reach 90 and have to plausibly plan for a 100 year life. So actually, we've got a new imperative in life, which is to age well and structure life differently. And for me, it's about thinking about time differently we we've we think about age as the number of candles in a cake but as i say for me the key thing everyone of every age has got more time ahead of them i'm 55 uh when i was born a 55 year old british male could expect to live another 18 years now they can expect to live at least another 27 so wow you know that's what i make use of that time and of course once you start thinking about time you've got more of your future self and you have to think about doing things differently, giving your future self more, whether that be health, whether it be purpose, whether it be relationships or not. And it's interesting hearing sort of Katie talk about her twins. I, I too have got three kids. And and part of what provoked me to write The 100 Year Life was thinking, why are my kids ignoring me? And I'm giving them advice and they're completely ignoring me. And it was a realisation that they were going to live a very different life to me, just as I did from my parents. And part of it was recognising that longevity. Now, we used to see life very clearly. You went to school, you had an education, then you had a career, and then you retired. So how has that lifespan and things you do within it been broken? Yeah, so I'm glad you're focusing on time because that was my big... I'm an economist and I would give a lecture on an ageing society. An ageing society story is pretty miserable. It says there's just fewer children being born, there's more old people... Old people are a problem, they get ill, they don't work, uh, and that's a burden. And then you look at the sort of the actual key statistic, which is on average, we're living longer and we're healthier for longer, which is like, whoa, that sounds like good. How you turn that into bad news? And then, you know, once you start to investigate, you realise this is about having more time. It's not all about the end of life. It's about all of life. And that as a society, we actually shape time. And in the 20th century, we created time in lots of different ways. We created the weekend, for instance. There didn't used to be a weekend. Um, we also created a three-stage life of education, work and retirement. And with that came whole new ways of behaving. So we saw the emergence of teenagers. Previously, we said children and adults, and we invented teenagers. And we didn't just invent them overnight. It took quite a long while to work out what on earth this phase is for. And then retirement we invented. Retirement, again, was a new invention. And we worked out how do we spend that time? And we see the development of retirement homes, the Sunshine Coast. All of these are ways of trying to make use of time. And, of course, what has been happening as we live for longer 
is we've sort of been struggling to adapt because, you know, retiring at 60 or 65, if you're living to 90 or 100, that's a long, long time. Is that right? So I think we're in the midst of a similar massive social experiment as we adjust to new realities. And I can see it already happening. You know, if I look at my children who are in their 20s, late, early to late 20s, they're doing things at very different times than I did, just as I did with my parents. But we're also seeing it in, as you heard from Lucy, in 40s, 50s and 60s, as sort of midlife takes on a whole new meaning and a new definition, both of when it happens and what you do. Andrew, how useful is it now? I mean, we know Katie's children are too young to be thinking about it right now, but for young people starting to think about all these things and looking at options of well, I might have one career and then another career and then another one. How important is it to think about it when you're really young? Well, I I think it is. You go from that classic three-stage life, education, work, retirement, to a multi-stage life where you've got lots of different stages to your career with different trade-offs. Sometimes it might be about money, sometimes work-life balance, something giving back. You can structure that any way you want. And so, you know, you could do your teaching career at the end, in the middle, at the beginning. There's all these transitions. And of course, the great thing also when you've got a multi-stage life is not just that it's less age-dependent than our traditional models. You know, you could be a teacher in your 20s, 50s, or 80s, a senior manager in your 30s, 50s, or 70s. You could be at college at all those ages. It is also the, the value of exploration. You're seeing the sort of the hallmarks of commitments just happening later. And I think that's about exploring and discovering options. And actually, with a multi-stage life and a long life, it's sort of important to know what you're not doing as well as what you are doing. So the exploration stage is really important, Um, not committing to something. One of the things you say in the book, Andrew, is that we need to make choices for what you describe as turning greater life expectancy into a gift rather than a curse. So in terms of planning, which we all have to do, how do you do that? How can you turn this mm. into a gift? So I think, you know, this is what is going to become very important is the ability to deal with long-term issues. And that's a challenge because actually it's not something we as humans are very good at and some people are better than others. But, you know, every time the you know dessert trolley comes around in a restaurant, I've got to try and think long-term, not short-term. And those things only make a difference longer-term. Uh, but it's really hard. So I, I think actually it's a skill you can learn. Um, education will have to start to shift to make us think about these long-term selves. I think the more you can get people to mix into generation, I think the more you can make people aware that older people are just you fast-forwarded several decades. So I think part of the challenge we've got is a society that with a three-stage life has become very age-segregated, particularly in the UK, where there's not a lot of intergenerational mixing, which I think also gets in the way of this uh, forming this, this sense. But how do you uh, get people to behave longer term? I say I think it's about constant awareness, and I think it is something that naturally comes as you start to get older. It's very hard to understand when you're in your 20s or 30s, some of the tensions that come along. But your point about pensions, I think, is interesting. Uh, Because, of course, in a three-stage life, a key part of that second stage working is to provide the finances for a third stage. Um, But if we can't 
stretch that three-stage life to 90 or 100 years. And if you do the maths, and Katie's poor children probably work until 80 or 90 if you kind of want to keep up doing it that way. That's a pretty miserable long life, I think. Because as Lucy said in her audio clip, you can be pretty bored by the time you get to your 50s when you've been doing the same thing for 30 odd years. And so you're going to want to change and do things differently. And you will need money for that, but you're also going to need to have options. And, you know, that's not just about your finances. It's about your skills. It's about your opportunities. It's your relationship. And it's your sense of purpose. And I think, you know, it's really interesting hearing Lucy emphasize purpose and I think also identity. Because one of the things I think that perhaps Jenny, your kids in their 30s are doing or mine in their 20s are doing is they're spending a lot more time investing in who they are and what they stand for than perhaps my generation did or certainly my parents who started work at 14. And I think, you know, those those they are kind of investing in themselves because if you know who you are and what you stand for, then you can navigate these different times in different ways. And a pension's important, but my goodness, knowing what you stand for and what you want to do is even better because that's what kind of makes it a good life uh, as well as hopefully a long one. What have you found, Katie, tends to trigger the need for change? Not just that you feel you're going to live for another 20 or 30 years when you're 65. Is it just doing, as Lucy did, and indeed as I did, the same job for 33 years and then think, oh my goodness, I need a change, what can I do? A lot of it, yes, is is that. I, I've talked so often to now teachers about this and it's fascinating seeing the, the patterns. I think people often talk about learning, how important that is, that when they suddenly realise they're not actually getting better at what they do. Um, and like Lucy said, less less fun. And I think that perhaps once people's children grow up, if they have children or once they've got a house if, or whatever it might be, the immediate sense of purpose that came from earning money feels less relevant and other things take priority. And then I think there are some sort of more personal things that are very critical, kind of things like, I mean, Lucy's father dying, she's spoken about, and that's not at all uncommon for our now teachers, the death of someone, usually a parent, occasionally tragically a child, that makes you think, well, what is all this for? And also a sense of one's own mortality reinvested there. Um, and practical things like children moving out or perhaps a divorce, sort of things being shaken up and perhaps time and being a bit more time rich than one was before. And then I love, but what I love so much about Andrew's book is this this thing of the gift of time and actually being aware of what it is they have loved in their job. Was it actually training the younger people coming through or learning new things and so on? And those, I think, are what triggers people. And then there's got to be some kind of inspiration, some sort of clarion call, which Lucy as Pied Piper was incredibly important for with, with Now Teach and Now Teachers, the potential to do something, the knowledge that it's possible. What have you found, Andrew, from these people who think, right, I'm going to do something completely different, even though I am, in my case, very nearly 71? Uh, a long life ahead of you as well, Jenny, which is great. So loads of things you can do. I mean, I think... Teaching, you know, what's for example. Me, just the sheer diversity <laughs> of people's experience. And of course, there are certain milestones. And it's interesting hearing Lucy talking about losing her parents when my mother died after my father, you know, there's a sense of, you know, you're the next generation up over the trench sort of thing. So there's a sort of sense of mortality. Uh, and certainly, you know, watching your kids grow up gives you a sense of a passage of time. Um, but I think others, you know, there's, there's a literature about age itself and the passage of time making you sort of start to focus on what matters most and what really 
you know you're, you're going to focus on perhaps you realize that you've achieved your financial goals or money isn't as important or there's there's false uh, gods i i think the other challenge is that because we're living these longer lives and society is structured not to often support that you're also seeing traumas happen that aren't a choice but are inflicted upon so we still see lots of people from 50 onwards withdraw from the labor force not because they've chosen to but because they've lost their job um, uh, divorce sometimes is uh, you know a, a cooperative thing other times it's not so I think those traumas are also increasingly becoming a, a source of the change uh, and transition and just as you're going from child to an adult is a somewhat tumultuous but exciting experience there's now a transition that can happen later where you say well you know I knew the child I was, I don't yet know the adult I'm going to be. And you can say, well, I knew the adult I was, but now I'm looking to be something different. How easy then, Katie, is it for us all to combat ageism as we grow older, to have people accept that actually we are perfectly competent to do a new career, even if we might be in our mid-60s? A lot of people will look on that and say, oh, come on, you know, go home and retire. I think this is its something I've become increasingly interested in. And as per everything, I think education has a big role to play because ageism is perhaps uniquely, I don't know, but very internalised. And all the research that I find so fascinating shows that if we are ourselves ageist, we will have a worse, indeed a shorter and less healthy older age. And so actually, the more we segregate the world into old and young, the more entrenched those fears and positions become. And actually, it does a disservice to everybody, to the people who are currently old, but also to the people who will become old with the attitude that that is going to be all negative and bad. So um, I think like everything else, so much of this comes down to role models. Lots of times when I would talk to head teachers at the beginning of Now Teach, they'd say, oh, but it's a young person's game or this, that and the other. And probably that was partly because you are not necessarily seen older people starting out teaching. But the minute it seemed to be possible, then it clearly is. Um, America right now with with Biden, even with Trump, you know, age was not not the limiting factor there. And, And I think that... It's just about doing and things becoming possible. But I do think that children and, and mixing up the mixing up the generation seems to me incredibly important to combating ageism so that we don't live so segregated. And, and that's children and older people, but it's it's different stages. You know, Lucy is sort of, as it were, a generation above me and have become one of my closest friends, godparent to my child. And we have a happy working relationship. And a lot of the now teachers talk about the joy that comes from having much younger colleagues often and how sort of rejuvenating that is. How do children in class respond to older teachers? To be honest, I think I started teaching when I was 22 and I remember some students having a guess at my age, which ranged from sort of 22 (laughs) to 106. So truthfully, I think not much. If anything, it's probably a bit of a benefit. Occasionally they're mistaken for Ofsted inspectors. Parents, I think, tend to think that they're much more experienced than they have been. So listen very carefully. So I think in the very beginning, it can give a little bit of additional help. How easy, Andrew, do you think it is for someone who is older now, who had not made the kind of plans that you would like us all to have made, how easy is it to know where to start? Say you're 65 and you think, I'm going to do something completely different. Where do you begin? Where to begin is is interesting because we don't have these well-established social norms. So one of the great things about Now Teach is it's showing us a path. 
and it's showing us how to do it. There are other people to talk to. Uh, and also, I think, you know, the great thing about the social norms is you find out actually if it's going to be good for you or not, because it won't suit everyone. But there's people to talk to that you can look at. And I think, you know, that's the really big change we've got. I said teenagers, we didn't know what to do with that age. I think the first response was things like the Boy Scouts and the Boys Brigade, which is put them in uniform and give them some discipline. And that didn't really work out. So it takes a, a while. So everyone, I think, is looking around horizontally and saying, well, they're doing something. That looks interesting. And that teach looks good. But we don't have enough of those social norms um, and so that's a challenge. But also, if you then think about looking around, it's a question of who do you look at and how have you built those networks? And for me, that, that was one of the things writing the book is I'm fortunate enough to have a very you know, good network of friends, but they're all like me. So we'll have a great time when we meet together. You know, we talk about 1980s films and music. We talk about football and finance, etc. But that's not really a different network. So finding ways to broaden the network, I think, is really, really key. But often people start because they have to. Uh, you know, again, it was interesting hearing to Lucy say, well, I had initial interest and then later on I really followed it through. But for others, they have to do it because they've just, they've just lost the previous role and they need to do something. And that, I think, is the group which needs a lot of support where there's currently an institutional vacuum. Uh, it's interesting hearing in the UK things like the midlife MOT that some firms are doing, uh, where people in their 40s and 50s go along to sort of classes to take stock of where they are, what they want to do. My only worry with that is that's provided by firms. And I'm not sure people are going to be completely honest in a firm context. I kind of feel we need that to be run through, you know, local colleges or something of that form, uh, where we can get groups of people together starting to discuss this, because that's how these new social norms can emerge. And Jenny, if it's not teaching, what are you going to do with yeah, the main exactly. decades of your life? Well, I'm actually thinking about teaching. I've done it a little bit in the past and enjoyed it enormously. And then I just have to give up the idea that at heart I'm a journalist and try to think, well, at heart, I'm a teacher. But I think it's like Andrew was saying, I sort of think there isn't perhaps any difference. These are just clothes, but it's about communication, isn't it? And, and sharing things and ideas. Mm. Oh, what a wonderful way to think. <laughs> uh, let's just say I'm <laughs> thinking about it. And this podcast series is going to help me greatly in making my decisions. Whatever you decide to do, thinking is the first part of making sure you make the right decisions. That sounds very, that's, that's the best advice, I think, as you say, you can give people about what to do. Think about it. Well, Andrew Scott, Katie Waldegrave, thank you so much for being with us today. A very interesting conversation and it's left me plenty to think about. <laughs> do follow us next time when we'll be talking about what you give and what you get from a second career in teaching. Bye for now. Now and Grown Up is brought to you by Now Teach, a charity which inspires talented people to bring their experiences into the classroom. If you feel like a change and want to use your existing skills in exciting new ways, head to nowteach.org.uk to find out how they could help you help young people like me. Or if you know someone who you think will be an amazing teacher, send them this podcast. Maybe it will be just the push they need. And don't forget to follow the show and leave it a rating on Apple Podcasts. Now I'm Grown Up is produced by Antonia Cundy and Theodora Leloudis. And the credits are read by me, Ty Holbert, age 13. <laughs>